Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, Reflection, a Study of Philippians. If you missed any part of this series, you can find it and others online at sheridanhouse.org backslash WBS. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. This past summer, Bob and I were sitting um, out on the porch and we started talking and reflecting about people whose lives had impacted us. And we, we talked about how this couple, year after year, had allowed our family to stay in their beautiful home in North Carolina. And we recalled, we were talking about how much study and prayer and talks and processing we were able to do as a busy ministry family because of their generosity. And then Bob began to talk about, you know, um, I, I also her, the husband of this couple, he said, had been such a mentor to him on how to conduct the oversight of Sheridan House from a godly businessman's perspective. And so we talked about that, and as we were talking, and, we're, and I, I, I was probably even studying this lesson, perhaps, and as we talked about that, we said, you know what, they just live up the road in North Carolina. Let's see if we could, you know, maybe meet them for lunch or something, which is something we don't really do a whole lot of up there. And um, so we called them up, and sure enough, they happened to be in town. We met them halfway and had lunch with them, and we decided that we were going to thank them for reflecting a worthy life in front of us. And we itemized. I talked about the house aspect and the generosity. And then Bob talked about the mentorship of this businessman and so forth. And it was just a, a, a very life-changing moment for us, and hopefully for them, but for us to think about and process people who lived lives that people could see Jesus in them. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about how do we live a life worthy of the gospel. If you'll turn with me to in your Bibles to Philippians 1.27 or your Bible app or whatever you use, but um, look with me to verse 27 as we think about how to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is Paul saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is Paul saying to us practically? What does that look like in my life today? Well, A, on your outline, what should our conduct be like? Now, we have talked over and over again over the years that as followers of Jesus, guess what? We're no longer citizens of this world, are we? We're really inhabitants of uh, a, a world called, um, I'm going to prepare this for you from Jesus. We're, we're inhabitants. We're heavenly citizens once we receive Jesus as our Savior. And as we've talked week after week, we have in our deep gratitude for all that God has done, we want to reflect our lives that reflect that citizenship, that our lives would reflect the fact that we're citizens of heaven, 
not really earth anymore. We're, you know, I think the closer and closer we, we come to the Lord and the more we learn and the more we're applying scripture, the more and more we start looking like head of heaven's citizens, don't you think? And that is what we want to do. So, number one, first, we are to conduct ourselves as citizens. Conduct ourselves as citizens. Gordon Fay said, life as worthy citizens of your, your heavenly homeland. Paul's readers understood very well what Paul was saying because though they were in Philippi, which was a long way away from Rome, they were still citizens. They were still Roman citizens, subject to Roman law, spoke Latin, and their leaders were Roman officials. So they, even though they were a long way away from Rome, they still knew what it meant to be a Roman citizen. That's kind of the idea here. That, you know, heaven, our, our citizenship in heaven might not be realized for a long, long time. We don't know whether we have one day, one hour, or 10 years, or whatever we have. But um, today, I need to conduct myself as a heavenly citizen. That's what that Paul is talking to them about. As a little girl, you all know that I grew up in Japan, and my parents... Uh, impressed upon us, we're living in this wonderful land called Japan that we love, but we also represent our American citizenship. So clearly, you know, we had blue eyes, all the whole family, and, um, and lighter hair, and so clearly by looking at us immediately, they knew, you know, the Japanese people knew that we were not citizens, even though we felt like we were Japanese by the time we left. And they were saying, we must represent the United States of America in a very positive way when we're in this foreign land. And when I was a little girl, about three years old, um, I went with a friend of mine to several of our neighbors' house. We kind of popped in to see them. And, and um, when, when, I was, when, when we were little, they had a little saying. They'd put their little hands together, and they'd say, Cho dai. And that meant, I want that, please. And so I was in my neighbor's house about three years old, and um, I started saying cholite to everything that was in my sight, <laughs> from <laughs> cookies on the table to priceless family heirlooms. And because I was, yes, and because I was, you know, a little girl or whatever, um, they uh, just practically unloaded their homes on me, you know, and I went home with, not the heirlooms, but a lot of what I wanted. And my parents, when I got home, were horrified that I was not representing my citizenship well. Joel Dyke, anyway. Um, and how much more important than representing a country, we are to be citizens of a heavenly country, the heavenly kingdom, all bound by a higher law. If we're citizens of the heavenly kingdom, then we should live by heavenly standards, which we find in God's word. And that is why you have given up your Wednesday morning to find out what are the standards? What am I to learn? What, how do you want me to live, Lord, in a way that I can reflect Jesus? And today... In a world in time where Christianity is scoffed, and I think even we're kind of opening up into maybe even a discriminatory time in our country, unfortunately, we have a responsibility to be amazing 
representatives of Christianity. You know, I, I've talked to you and laugh about our um, waitress ministry, which Bob and I, he has to take me out to lunch all the time because, hey, we have this ministry, right? And um, we're trying to minister to these waitresses, so hey, we need to eat out. And um, so, you know, we, we have to be careful, seriously, when, when we're in a restaurant, when we're praying, okay, there, there are those weird Christians, we better watch them. We have an obligation and a responsibility to be the most fun patrons anybody has had, the most generous I remember hearing, do you remember the day when um, there were some Christians that would, instead of giving a tip to the waitress, they'd put in the thing a tract. Now, when I say tract, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? A little small pamphlet that talked about how to become a Christian or something like that. Um, There's one little millennial sitting in the back last night when I said tract, and she turned to her group leader and she goes, Maybe they actually gave him like a CD of music or something. I, mean, <laughs> I thought, oh boy, does that age me? But um, anyway, but how sad. If you want to put a tract in, oh my goodness, then you better put a hundred dollar bill. That's exactly right, Ellie. I mean, be so generous. We need to be examples in those areas that we uh, have an opportunity to be live a life worthy that people can see our heavenly citizenship or how about our neighbors they see us pulling out of the neighborhood every Sunday morning they know we're going to church so does that shouldn't that mean that I should be the most pleasant neighbor in the on the block that I should be the late least gossipy that I should be the most helpful and that is so critical that especially in a world that does not understand what heavenly citizenship is like that we need to be living lives worthy. There's a recent C.S. Lewis quote I just found that says this, be a road sign pointing others to Christ. Pointing others to Christ. If I'm not conducting myself as a heavenly citizen, I can't be a signpost to Jesus, can I? I cannot be a signpost. Then, Apostle Paul continues to talk about what their attitude should be. He gets kind of starts getting very specific. Look at the second part of 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So number one, act like citizens. Number two, we should conduct ourselves as a team. Notice how he says, side by side. They must present a united front against opposition with one mind striving side by side the verse says kind of like a sort of an athletic team picture Um, I immediately had a picture of Roby playing soccer and now interestingly he is Nehemiah's soccer coach but in the day when he was playing soccer when the other team was fouled sometimes they would get a free kick at the goal And I remember in those times um, seeing uh, Roby's team standing up shoulder to shoulder trying to keep the ball from getting past their goalie. Team effort. That's the picture here. That we're to stand shoulder to shoulder. As believers, we need to stand together, striving side by side as one man, as the verse says, as a unit, as citizens of heaven doing kingdom work. Our relationships to each other 
are paramount. Paramount. Um, I got carried away here. Where am I? The motivation of teamwork to be used by God. What for? How are we to stand together? What are we trying to accomplish? We're, we, we, what we're trying to accomplish is to be used by God to populate heaven. To populate heaven. Then Paul goes on to discuss the outcome of such unified spirit. Be on your outline. What was the outcome of the unified spirit? The ver uh, next verse, verse 28. And not frightened by anything, by your by in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God. First, number one, there will be no fear, not frightened, as the verse says, by your opponents. How could they not be afraid with all that was going on in their world? And Paul, goodness sake, imprisoned not knowing if the next day would be his last. And yet he's saying, you're not going to be frightened by your opponents because we're going to stand firm in, in our relationship with the Lord first as citizens of heaven and our relationship together. He uses a very rare uh, word there for frightened. It is a one that describes frightened horses stampeding, like a panic reaction. reaction. He's basically saying, don't keep panic, don't stampede, don't keep your head in all this as you're going through difficulties, keep your head, don't react in fear. You're a citizen of heaven, and who's in control? God. God is in control. Boy, do we need to say that to one another, don't we? When we're going through bad times, we need to say, don't stampede in terror. Be careful. Let me stand with you. Let me pray with you. We, we are to not react in fear because we know who's in control. We know who is in control. When we don't react in the normal way, it unnerves our enemies. It's kind of what he is saying to the Philippian Christians. They're going to know. How does the verse go? They're, it's going to be a clear sign to them of their destruction when you can stand firm and fearless and not panic and not stampede in fear. Uh, my cousin, uh, years ago, uh, was coming in from the grocery store. Always close your garage door before you go in the house. She hadn't done that, and she was ca carrying bags of groceries in, and a man followed her into the kitchen with some ill intent. And when she realized what was going on, she immediately began praying out loud. And she'd say, Lord, thank you so much that you are totally in control of my life in these difficult situations. I thank you that you love me, and I thank you, Lord, that you will even forgive what this man is about to do. He was so unnerved. What do you think he did? He was out of that kitchen as fast as he was in the kitchen. Example that he realized his destruction. What Paul is saying is when we are strong and loudly proclaiming Jesus, we, our opponents, know about their destruction because we're an example of power and God in control. Wow. Secondly, 
there will be assurance. Notice the end of the verse. This is a sign that you will be saved. When we walk in the face of tremendous challenges and obstacles with a peace and a calmness that we cannot explain, what it does is it settles our hearts. We say, wow, God is in control of this. He's in control of my life. This is proof that um, I- I'm, get- I'm going to heaven someday because I'm seeing God's hand in, in-, in character traits and, and peace of mind and uh, all of those things. We were sitting around the, um, the, the table, group leaders, and began to talk about some of the challenges that some, some of us have, have been through, and we talked about that. I, I felt it was a horrific moment, but I just felt this peace that I was in the, the lap of my father, that he was ministering to me. Now, do you think we can conjure that up as human beings? No, no. It's a sign when we're going through difficulties and painful times and we see, we, we find ourselves in peace. Now, let me hasten to say that we're all human beings. We all have, you know, uh, human natures. And there are going to be times when we are fearful and we're, there are going to be times when we are, you know, like, Lord, where are you? And all those things. That's real. But there are other times when God in his mercy and grace pours out comfort and his presence that we know only comes miraculously from him. And so that is a sign to us, hey, I have a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. I'm a heavenly citizen. I'm going to heaven someday. And here's an example of how I know it. Because in this situation when, where I should be terrorized and stampeding and panic and all those kinds of things, wow, he's filling me with a peace and an assurance and a comfort and a, he's standing right beside me. Wow. That is God. That is God. That's what Paul is saying here, that we know we are saved when we see the supernatural working of God in our lives. We can sense God. D.A. Carson said, your change in character, your united stand in defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness constitutes a sign. It is a sign of assurance that those believers really are the people of God. Really are the people of God. Well, next on your outline, what are the results of godly living? Look with me to verse 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What? We'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still had. Another great quote from Karl Barth. The grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed by the grace of being permitted to suffer for him, of being permitted to walk the way of Christ with Christ himself to the perfection of the fellowship in him. First, we're going to get to that suffering part. First, we have received the gift of salvation. First, notice the verse says, believe in him. In other words, we have received a future in heaven with him, the inconceivable gift of him going to prepare a place for us that we can't even wrap our human minds around. We can't even begin to imagine what God has uh, for us in eternity. He then goes on to say, be we receive the gift of suffering with Jesus. And Paul's saying, you've seen me struggle. He said, you know, I- I'm struggling now. And he said, and he also says, in the past, or um, 
for the sake of another, um, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had. He's referring back to way back when he was in Philippi, when the church was being formed. Remember, he was thrown in prison, he was chained, and remember that he and Timothy were singing at the top of his lungs, and his chains fell off, and the guard almost committed suicide because he knew, I'm dead anyway. All of them are leaving because the doors, there was an earthquake or whatever. That was in Philippi. And so he's saying, okay, you've seen that in me then, and you see it in me now, that, um, there, you know, that there's, there's, there's conflict, that um, I w he was beaten and thrown in prison and all those kinds of things. And now I'm engaged in the same conflict. It's, again, kind of an athletic turn, a conflict in the sports arena. So what he is saying is we are athletes for Christ, struggling in the game of life, as we are doing our part to advance the gospel. Now, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I say that, I want to say, wait a minute. Number one, is this really a gift? We want comfort, don't we? We, when we go to the Lord, we're saying, God, hey, would you make everything perfect in my life? And I, I, would you answer this prayer about this relationship and that situation? And I want to be comfortable ha here. I want to be happy, happy in my happening, Maria, not joyful in, in Jesus. I want happy. And so we have the tendency to continually pray, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't like the sound of the gift of suffering. I want the gift of happy. <laughs> I want the gift of comfortable. Wow. But what we have to understand is that we grow stronger as we identify with Jesus. As we identify with him, as we go through, guess what? We're all going to suffer here on this earth. I hate to tell you that, but it's truth. Has anybody here had a complete and perfect year without any problems whatsoever? <laughs> Okay, Karen, get up here and start teaching this lesson. <laughs> anyway, we are going to suffer because we live in a fallen world. There's going to be suffering, and it's all about how we're going to respond to that. And if we could, like Paul, say, what a privilege, Jesus, that I get to suffer with you. In fact, Jesus said, hey, when I go back to heaven, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that you're going to be misunderstood, you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, and every single one, of the disciples gave his life except for the book of, for John who had to write the book of Revelation for us and other books but every one of them gave their life and the the tradition says that Peter was going to be crucified he said oh don't crucify me crucify me upside down I'm not worthy to die like Jesus died wow suffer <sighs> I think so and that uh, John Ruskin says, the highest reward for a person's toil is not what they get for it, but here it is, what they become for it. And again, the leaders, we were talking about how the, it's those adversities, it's the difficulties, it's the suffering, it's the problems, it's the stuff that grows us up. If everything was wonderful and if everything went just the way we want them to go, we would never grow. We just kind of stay stagnant in the same thing and just wait for the next yummy thing to happen in our lives. Where we grow is through adversity. Number two, that all sounds good, but number two, how do I function? What do I do? How do I function in the fact that I live in a world that's going to produce suffering? It's deciding 
whatever God allows in my life, I will allow it him to use it for his sake. Let me say that again. It's deciding that whatever God allows in my life, I will allow him to use for his sake. We're all going to have stuff. I function knowing that God is going to use it. We need to function knowing that God is going to use it. Some of you have heard this story a thousand times. I'm telling it again. But my grandfather was missionary in China during World War II. <clears throat> and he was kind of a liaison officer between the uh, American missionaries and government and the Chinese government. And he was on a mission in the back of a Jeep one time. And they were through the <clears throat> mountainous passes of China. And uh, he was in a terrible accident that severed his right arm. And they rushed him to the hospital, and they um, uh, amputated his arm, and had he had a prosthesis for the rest of his life. And um, he went soon after World War II. He retired and came back to America. And after it was maybe even um, I want to say almost ten years, and all of a sudden he got a phone call from his mission board, and the mission board said, "Dr. Tory, would you be willing to go?" back to the mission field, this time Korea, because the Korean War has just ended, and we have thousands of amputees coming across the DMZ border with um, amputations, losing their limbs, arms, legs, all the above. What we want to do is to set up an amputee center that is mission-based, where we're going to talk to them not only about rehabilitating after they've lost limbs, but we're going to um, preach to them about the gospel. Hundreds of them came to know the Lord. And here's a backtrack that I forgot to tell you. When he had the accident, my grandmother happened to be in the, in the States. And um, he, in the day, they didn't have phone calls and what that kind of thing. He wrote her a telegram. I wish that millennial was sitting here to see if she knows what a telegram is. <laughs> she... He sent her a telegram, and he said, I've been in a bad accident, period. I've lost my arm, period. I am fine, period. Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called in court to his purpose. How would he have ever, God put that on his heart, for almost 10 years later, when he would be sent back to Korea to be involved in helping people who had been in the same situation as him come to know the Lord. That's the kind of thing we need to carry in our heart, that as we're going through our difficulties, we don't just say, oh, I hate this, oh, Lord, take it away. We need to say, okay, use it, Lord. Use it, use it, use it for your kingdom's sake. Bring somebody to the Lord from it. Whatever you're going to do, I want you to use what I am going through in serving others. Sometimes our suffering is much more smaller things. 
in fact, probably most of our small is just, you know, misunderstanding or did anybody appreciate me or I'm working so hard ministering to this person and they don't even say thank you. And, you know, I think a lot of parents are perhaps in that category or maybe the pastors of small churches that are struggling, struggling, and they don't have a big staff to help with, with the load of ministering to people in the hospital and, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, but again, in those times, we can remember who remembers? My favorite verse, I think I said it last, uh, one of my favorite verses, I think I even said it last week, Hebrews 6.10, that says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So as we take on our suffering, be they small irritations, um, feeling unappreciated or not observed, or actually the really difficult things, if we can remember, God sees it all. God sees it all. How do I function? By deciding that God can and does use every suffering situation, big from irritations on up to the, uh, big to the irritations, the small ones, as a service for the kingdom. Now, how can we have that kind of mature, selfless perspective? Next on your outline, how do we stand firm in our call? First of all, A, we have to become strong on the inside. What does that mean? Philippians 2, 1 says this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, he is saying, that is where it comes from. Now, what, he, what he's describing here is amongst believers, encouragement in Christ, comfort from the love that we have from one another, participation through the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy that we might have from one another. So number one, what he is saying is that we need to be strong through unity. We need to be strong through unity. He's making the point that to withstand the persecution from the outside, they need to be unified on the inside. And although the Philippian church had much going from it, uh, even as Paul's favorite church probably, it had problems because they were human. They, they had issues, just like every group, every situation has issues. But if you want to find encouragement, love, choose unity. Number two, be strong through the ingredients of unity. What are they? A on your outline first, the ingredient of unity with Christ. What makes us one needs to be much more than doctrine, creed, or forms of worship. Oh, yeah, I really identify with Stephanie because she and I both love the old hymns. We're unified. Um, or, you know, I really like praise music, so Joy and I, whew, we are connected. Or we believe the same things. You know, we, we believe, I mean, I know some people believe in, you know, baptizing infants, and some people believe in immersing believers, and, you know, this is important. Well, some of those things are indeed important. But point being that w we have the common bond, not doctrine or creeds or form of worship, although some of those things are extremely important. What does the Bible teach? But we have the common bond of loving and serving Jesus loving and serving Jesus. I've told this story before too, but haven't you had that experience of running into somebody and you instantly know that they're believers? 
Haven't you had that? I remember I've told you the story, but I was on the phone ordering an art piece from, um, that makes it sound so, you know, whatever, but it was a little wood thing with some painting on it. Anyway, and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I was talking to her, and the more I talked to her, I thought, this woman, I've never seen her before, just seen her work in the store, and I said, you're a believer, aren't you? And she said, yes, I love Jesus. And she said, you do too, don't you? And I said, yes. And I said, it's just so cool. We've never even seen each other. And, uh, and, and I just feel so connected. And she goes, oh, we haven't seen each other, but someday we're going to see each other in heaven. And it, I, it was just, wow. And haven't you met people like that where you just instantly feel a connection and you know from whence it comes? Number two ingredient. Unity with Christ, number two, ingredient of love. Want love for one another. Comfort from love, he said in, in that verse. Interestingly, the word he uses there is agape love. Love that comes from God. Unconditional love. This love will console us, encourage us, and keep us unified. Just that little affectionate love, you know, I like her because she's got the same taste or whatever. This is a deeper thing. This is a spiritual love. This is agape, God-given love. Um, one of the first interims that we did, um, Bob and I were there, and this sweet little family had a horrible accident, and something happened with the electrical system, and their house burned to the ground. And um, the leadership got together, and they said, you know what, this is time for us to bond together in love. And he said, and the leadership said, if everybody would just bring anything beyond the tithes and offerings, let's minister to this friend. And in the next few weeks, um, monies came pouring in, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, enough to get this family through those critical days as they figured out what to do, waiting for insurance money and all those kinds of things to happen. It was such an outpouring. That is God's love, sacrificially ministering to each other. And that's what pa Paul is calling us to. Third ingredient the ingredient of the Spirit. Notice it says participation in the Spirit um, in, that, in that verse. When we're born again, like Jesus said to Nicodemus, we receive the Holy Spirit. We and they have that in common. The Holy Spirit, what does he do? He gives us the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't he? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control self-control and when we see these qualities given they give us the uh, the opportunity to be unified when we see those when i receive your love and peace and mercy and all those um, patience kindness goodness and all those kinds of things then we can we can become unified the verse goes on to say affection and sympathy in other words compassion allowing those fruits to pour out upon each other and b what are the results of the ingredients of unity? Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Number one, being like-minded, being of the same mind, the verse says. In other words, having the same attitude and perspective towards life. As they love each other, as they um, are being one in the Holy Spirit with the fruits of the Spirit pouring out of them, then they will, 
be one in our lives, our thoughts, our intentions. Everything about us will move more together. Number two, um, ingredient. Being like-minded, number two, is being humble. Look at verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Frank Tillman said this, within the modern Western context, the temptation to follow personalities rather than Christ is strong in the modern church. We must relinquish our fascination with personalities, including our own. Do you love it? Um, and get busy with the unimpressive tasks of helping our brothers and sisters at their point of need. How do we do that? How do we treat, achieve humility A? By putting others first. Putting others first. Again, that goes so against human nature, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness, I'm all about me and, you know, serve me and do this for me and make me be comfortable. And we're all about ourselves. But what we're being called to is humility, humility, humility. Disharmony comes when we constantly are thinking of ourselves and putting our own needs before others. They, that will create continual uh, conflict. We need to ask God to help us to go into our humanity, go against our humanity, and give us the ability to put others and their needs before our own. Again, another story I've told you before. I have to tell it again. Um, when my dad felt called to go to Japan uh, to the mission field, my grandmother, his mother, uh, had been a widow for years. She became a widow. My, my grandfather was a, a pastor in, in Los Angeles, and and he died while they were serving out there, and she was in her early 50s. And um, that seems old to some of you, I know. <laughs> anyway, and um, so she had been alone for years. And um, so when my dad, who was her only child, said, I'm going to the mission field, and this was a day when you didn't hop on a jet and get over to another country in you know, a couple hours. This was a time when they probably didn't even have jets, I don't know. And, um, boy, that's dating me. Whew. And um, it was a time when we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have email, we didn't have computers, we didn't have texting. We, um, you know, we had a landline, but are you kidding? It cost $3 million to call another country at the time. <laughs> Remember those days? Yeah, yeah anyway. And, um, and so here was my grandmother with her only son and only family moving across the ocean, she was able to come one time in the 12 years we were there. We went home on furlough twice every five years. Those were, that was all we saw, other than letters back and forth, weekly letters. And my grandmother, when she heard the news that we were all packing it up and going to Japan, said, praise the Lord, go win those people to Jesus. And it was the most, I, I remember, that's why I'm telling this story a thousand times, because I, that was perhaps one of the most unselfish, on a personal note, uh, story that I know, that she said, go, go, go. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Wow. Number two, another way of humility Putting others first, number two, promoting the needs of others. Learning once again to super, supernaturally from God, 
Put others' needs above your own. I think perhaps those of you who are married, probably the greatest example for us is the marriage relationship where it says in, full, in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wow. We are to think about others before ourselves. That's hard. That's hard. I'll never forget. Bob and I were doing a marriage conference out of town uh, a few years ago, and um, we were talking about this concept of, you know, um, thinking of each other's needs. And this man with tears in his eyes came up to me afterwards and he said, I just have to confess to you. He said, I am, I am terribly OCD. And I said, oh, that doesn't sound good. And he said, it's particularly with my wife and how she's function she functions in the home. And he said, every time she goes to the grocery store, I hand her a legal pad of all the things, backups that she needs to have. And, she, and, he, and you know, to make sure that everything is stocked well. And he said, I am so convicted about that that I need to think about her needs above the fact that I want all my shelves stacked exactly the way I want them to be stacked. And he said, and as a symbol of my um, conviction, I'm going to hand you my list of backups. I still have those in my prayer journal because it was so dramatic to me that he was so convicted that he needed to submit to one another in reverence for Christ. That's what we're talking about. When, we, when, when we're in a very difficult situation, um, we, we, um, to be completely whole, we need to be melding the strengths um, of each other and holding each other up. How? Not only in marriage, but in all of Christian unity, whether it's sisters in Christ or people, uh, you know, that are worshiping with us on Sunday, whatever it is, how do we do that? How? By an act of our will to take a step forward, relying on the Holy Spirit to furnish the power. Like any task that God calls us to, we need to take a, a step forward and relying on the Holy Spirit to provide the power. He doesn't call us to do something and say, go have fun. That's a hard job, but you go do it, girl. No, he provides the power to be able to do the very things that he is calling us to do. He gives us the strength and the power. We just need to take that first step of obedience. Wow. Just like any task, God equips us to do it. There, in the very last page of your outline, there is a section written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm sure you're familiar with the name. He was a German martyr during the Nazi oppression, and he wrote seven principles of life together, and it's the most practical, very convicting principles, but so apply to our relationships with one another as believers within your home or within your church community, which within our Bible study, whatever. But look what he says. He says, Christians should hold their tongues. Oh boy. <laughs> Refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother. Number two, Christians should cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that they, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by his grace. Number three, 
Christians should listen long and patiently so that they will understand their fellow Christians' need. Four, Christians should refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. Wow. Christians should bear the burden of their brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Six, Christians should declare God's word to their fellow believers when they need to hear it. Wow. Number seven, finally, Christians should understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs that service. Wow, isn't that good? Those are some practical things. I want to go home and memorize them. Don't ask me next week to say them, please. But anyway, wow, that is how we can develop community and humility.